Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com? Here is this week's teaching. Hey, uh, we're talking about marriage today, and I just want to give you a little warning. One of the things that usually comes up in marriage series are marriage activities. And so if you have children in the room that might be a little sensitive to discussions about certain marital activities, then maybe uh, they might enjoy hanging out downstairs with the kids. Uh, that's just your PG-13 warning for this service. I want to start today by looking at our theme passage for the series. It's found in Ephesians 5, and it goes like this. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That's the biblical idea of marriage. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So why is this important? How do a man and a woman become one? It's a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect. That's a big word. Is that hard to do sometimes? I would like to just change the word respect here for tolerate. The wife must tolerate her husband. It, it takes a lot more to get to respect. And today we're going to talk about how do I get to that place? If I've got a lot of frustration, a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of anger for my spouse, how do I get to the place where I can again respect my spouse? Almost everybody here has been impacted by divorce. Maybe your parents got a divorce. Maybe you got a divorce. Maybe somebody you are in relationship with got a divorce or their parents got a divorce. Everybody in one way has been impacted by divorce. Our society has been impacted by divorce. And God says that he hates divorce. Why? Because divorce hurts people. Divorce is painful. Anybody who's been through a divorce says, knows that divorce doesn't end a relationship. It kind of complicates a relationship, right? It's just, divorce is just messy and it's hard. So God says, let me give you some advice. And he's going to use himself and us and our relationship with him as an illustration. Let me give you some advice about how to avoid it, about how to avoid that pain. The good news is we've not only been impacted or seen bad marriages in our society and in our community, we've also seen good marriages. If you've come to church for any significant period of time, you have seen some good marriages. In fact, I'm looking in the audience right now and I'm seeing some incredible marriages. There are some people in this room with marriages that I want to be able to emulate. I want to have a marriage like that. It's possible. But you've got to put some principles into practice. You, you've got to put some work in. So the first advice I'm going to give in this series is find a good marriage and study it. 
Find somebody in your life group that is doing marriage well and copy them. What are they doing? And do what they do. Because we have a tendency to think we know best, our way is best. The Dr. Phil question is, how's that working for you? If it's not working well, then maybe you're wrong. Maybe your way isn't best. Find somebody who does have a strong quality marriage and do it their way for a while. Just test it out. See if it works. In this series, we are going to look at those happy marriages, those healthy relationships, and we're going to figure out what makes them good. And I'll just say this. It is a a series about marriage. I understand that about 50% of our congregation is not married. And so there are a lot of people out there who may be tempted to just say, not applicable doesn't help me. But here, let me tell you what you are. In a relationship of some kind, you have a relationship. And these same biblical principles that we can apply to our marriages can also be applied to all of our relationships. These principles are, are big enough to apply to your situation. I'll also say, if you'll stick around till this summer, in July, we're going to do a series for single people. I'm very excited. We're going to talk about how sometimes we have undervalued the calling of singleness. You know, Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul was single. Like, we follow a lot of single people. Sometimes we glorify marriage. But I think marriages are worth, worth investing in. So we're going to start by talking about what can make our marriages better. And we're going to talk about this because good marriages don't happen by accident. You may start with some good sparks and a, it, things could be good in the beginning, but eventually life happens, pain happens, sin happens, problems happen, and marriage gets harder and harder unless you invest in them. In the great marriages, at least one person decided to put in the hard work. Well, usually it's two, but at least one person decided to put in the hard work that a good marriage requires because the truth is marriage is hard. It requires sacrifice. Our marriage to Christ required his sacrifice, didn't it? We just had to say yes. In this marriage, we got the easy job. He gave his life so that he could marry us. Somebody's got to put in the work. We're just coming out of the month January. Did you know there are more Uh, divorces filed in January than any other month? Why do you think that is? Maybe it's the stress of the holidays. Maybe it's the terrible weather and everybody's just depressed. Not this year, but most years. Maybe it's because Valentine's Day was 11 months before and they haven't done any investing in their marriage since Valentine's Day. It just got, maybe once a year I'll do a day and that'll be my investment in my marriage. That's not going to be enough. It's got to be an ongoing practice. So I recognize in the month, early in the month of February, there are divorces in this room that are struggling. In fact, I've talked to some of you that your marriage is just hanging on by a thread. You're trying to figure out how to continue to live with somebody that you can't even look at, that you can't stand, that you're angry at, who sinned against you or caused problems, has caused pain or just annoys you. You're trying to figure out how, is, how we're going to make this work. You're asking the question, is my marriage worth saving? And to this question, Jesus says, yes, it is. Is your marriage perfect? Nope. 
but it can be better. And it's worth investing in. You know, God is taking, is, is notorious for taking ordinary, mundane, even broken things and doing miraculous things with them. Remember Moses' staff? Moses, the Prince of Egypt movie guy. He leads the people out of Israel using a staff. And God uses his staff to do crazy things. He tells Moses to throw his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake and then he eats up all the other snakes. He tells Moses to raise his staff in the air and the waters part. He tells Moses takes this staff and he hits a rock and water comes out of a rock. God does amazing things with a stick. And there was nothing miraculous about this stick. This, it was not made of some spiritual mahogany. It was not crafted in the heavens. It was a stick. Yet because Moses surrendered that stick to God, God was able to use it to do miraculous things. You remember Moses' disciple Aaron. Aaron had a staff too. What's a staff? A staff is a dead stick. It's not living anymore. Yet what did God do with Aaron's staff? He caused it to grow buds. It flowered. A dead stick. If you think your marriage is dead, give God a chance. Maybe he can bring life from what you see as dead. He did it with you. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in rebellion. Yet with you, when you surrendered your life to him, when you gave yourself to him, he gave you a new life. You were born again into God's family and you had the ability then to become the person he created you to be all along. All right, let's lighten things up. I read an article called Tips on Love from Those Who Should Know. All questions answered by kids ages 5 to 10. Question number one, what do most people do on a date? Mike, strong name, age nine, says on the first date, they just tell each other lies and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. It's true. It's a true story. This is what we do. The problem is eventually she realizes you don't have a pet cheetah and then she gets, she realizes you're a liar. No. Next question, what is the proper age to get married? Tom, age five, says 84. Because at that age, you don't have to work anymore and you can spend all your time loving each other in the bedroom. (laughs) Tom knows some very healthy 84-year-olds. Still going strong in the bedroom. Good for them. How do you make a marriage work? Zach, age 10, says, tell your wife she looks pretty even when she looks like a truck. (laughs) Know some healthy 84-year-olds and some ugly women is what. Well, it kind of depends on the truck, right? There's some pretty trucks out there. I would like to give you some advice today from Scripture about how to have and support a relationship that I hope is better than the advice that we just read. And I have a prediction. Apply the lessons of this series and God 
will restore your, your marriage. That's a big prediction. But I believe, in the, the, we're going to ask you to do some pretty difficult things in this series. But if you will apply the lessons of Scripture, if you'll give it a month, I promise you, God can revive your marriage. He can restore respect. He can bring life to what is dead. Not because I'm some love doctor who's going to give you that good of advice, but because I'm going to give you some biblical principles that work. Do you know why the divorce rate among people who attend church is so much lower than the divorce rate of the rest of the world? It's because it works. You've heard the rumor that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate in the world. Total lie. Do any research whatsoever. Just look at the numbers for a split second. It more than cuts the odds of divorce in half if you regularly attend church. Why? Because the principles that are taught from Scripture work. Apply them. It can save your marriage. All right. Let's uh, look at a passage today from Isaiah 55. It says, in the same way, or it is the same with my word, I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish the Bible, scripture. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. If you do it, God has a green thumb. It never returns void. It always works. God can revive your marriage. Scripture always produces fruit. Statistics prove that relationships get better when they are done God's way. And right up front here, I'm going to tip my hand, and I'm going to read for you what is really a key verse in this whole concept. We're going to use this a couple times in the series. And as I read this verse, would you read, there's a couple words in yellow, read the yellow words with me. Say them out loud. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we're talking about relationships of all kinds in this passage. We're going to apply the concept to marriage, but we're talking about our mindset. How does our mindset affect our relationships? The Greek word for mindset here is similar to our word opinion or way of thinking. Have the same opinion about relationships as Christ Jesus. Many people today have a very unhealthy opinion or mindset about what a relationship should look like. They have an unhealthy opinion about that, that's developed from our culture and these relationships that are all about what I get, how I feel. That's what love is now. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's an attraction. It's very selfish. That's how we use the word love. And this is what our society has misconstrued the idea of marriage to be. I'm going to do this. I'm going to marry this person so that they can fulfill me. It's all about taking. But if you look at the marriage ceremony, that is not at all what we talk about in a marriage ceremony. We talk about sacrifice for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health. The truth is, when we sign up to marry somebody, we are signing up for a lifetime of sacrifice to give, to give more, to keep giving. But our culture has skewed this idea. 
They, we watch things like chick flicks and pornography and romance no- novels or Instagram models, and we begin to create these ideas of what a marriage or a relationship should look like. And I'm not saying all of these things are equally good or bad. You can do some of them without sinning. But they all have, they all do something similar in our brains. They rewire us. They, be, they cause us to begin to fantasize about what kind of relationship we want. We begin to tell ourselves stories. We begin to have this idea that there's other relationships out there that actually look like, like the relationship in that chick flick. Did you know chick flicks are evil? For many reasons. Largely because they're boring. But also because some people I don't But also because they create this idea that life is nice and neat and good endings and happy conclusions and all everybody comes together and he finally apologizes and all these good things happen and they the, the reality is life is much more messy than what Hollywood conveys to us when you fill your mind with the images that you see in pornography you begin to assume that you should have a relationship that is able to accomplish what these staged sexual scenarios are accomplishing on camera. It's not realistic. It's not going to happen in your relationship. And so allowing yourself to create a fantasy relationship that even involves some of what you see in these scenarios cause, sets you up for failure. It creates an idea, a, a, a goal that you strive for that you will never reach. And if you did, it would be incredibly painful for you. It would be harmful to you if you got got what you fantasized about. Because the truth is, your fantasies will not align with God's plan for your life or for your marriage. I said this in my, I preached this sermon to the staff on Wednesday, and Pastor Paul said, yeah, what if my fantasy is to pray with my wife all day long? I was like, then you're not a real person, because that's not what happens. I think this is especially true since pornography started controlling our world. Because a good marriage requires sacrifice. There's a give and there's a take. And our fantasies usually focus in on the take. They focus in on what I'm getting, how I am feeling. It ends up being all about what I want. So let's go back to this Philippians verse. What does God want? Say it with me. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. What is Christ's mindset? Well, you look at the way he lived his life. His mindset is a mindset of sacrifice, of generosity. The action of love is not good feelings. It's not emotions. It's not sex. The action of love is generosity. If you want to see what love looks like, you see someone sacrificing for someone else. That's what love is. If God's plan for relationships is the key to a successful marriage, then what is God's plan? What is the mindset that he wants 
for us to have. I really think it can be summed up like this. Give more, expect less. What is Christ's relationship with the church? He gave everything. He sacrificed everything. And what does he ask from us? Now, I, I have to clarify, I understand that this advice does not work 100% of the time with everybody. It applies to everybody, like just about. If you're a real person, this advice probably applies to you. This is more of a proverb than it is a promise. Because the truth is there are some people that are living in physically abusive relationships where they've just given and given and given and it's just causing more pain. But when I look at the teachings of Christ, I see a lot of imbalance here. He does not balance this conversation. He doesn't say you should give unless. You should sacrifice unless. He always goes extreme with it. It's the idea of turning the other cheek. This is what Jesus says. He's a nut. It's crazy. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. What? He says, if somebody steals your coat, give them your pants or something. I can't remember what he says. That would be weird. But give them. If they steal one thing from you, give them something else. It's just this irrational, not so crazy advice that you should give way more than you think you should give. If you lend some money to somebody, don't ask for it back. It's nuts. That's the type of generosity God calls for. And he doesn't just say it, he does it. He gave his life for people who were actively sinning against him, who were rebelling against him. And when Jesus says slap the other cheek, he's, not, he's using a metaphor. He's not talking about how you should be in a physically abusive relationship. And I'm not saying that if you are in a physically abusive relationship, you should stay in that relationship. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying, however much you think you should give, raise it. If we're supposed to be like Christ, if that's the bar we're striving for, we're not giving enough. We're not sacrificing enough. Just radical generosity. And I'll also clarify this. A great marriage takes two people. You know this. The, peop- the, the relationships that are doing it best have two people who are doing this together. They're both giving like crazy. They're both sacrificing like crazy. Marriage is a, should be a submission competition. Who can submit more? Who can give more? If you want to see a happy couple, look, look for a couple where both of them are giving more than they think they should give. And that's the, that's the equation God set up for us. That's what it should look like. The problem is that in almost every failed marriage that I have encountered, that I've counseled, every time there's been a divorce, both people, could have given more. That sounds harsh. Because here's what happens in a relationship. We compare. How much is he giving? I will give that much. How much is she giving? I will give that much. 
We play this comparison game. Who's spending more money? Who gets more free time? Who's cleaning the house more? Who's doing which chores? And we compare. And we try to get as close as we can to 50%. I do 50, she does 50. And the second I think that I'm doing slightly more, I become indignant. I become prideful. I think I deserve more. The truth is, we've got to quit comparing. Stop measuring. Stop counting. And begin to give more. Give as much as you can. Sacrifice as much as you can. In this world, you will have pain. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be problems. You're going to, it's going to hurt. But expect to give more than you get. And the hope is that in the giving, your spouse will recognize your love for them. Your spouse will recognize your generosity, will recognize that you are sacrificing and begin to compete with you in a good way. They will also begin to sacrifice more. They will also begin to give more. That's the goal. The problem is when we compare, we we create this score sheet of who's giving more. What it always produces is dissatisfaction. And dissatisfaction destroys marriages. Dissatisfaction causes us to create resentment and anger. It's a recipe for disaster. The problem is, when we think we deserve more, we can't hide it. When I think that I'm giving more than she is, then eventually I slow down, I give a little bit less, try to bring back, like, let's try to balance things out. I'm going to quit cleaning so much. I'm going to quit doing this so much. When I compare, the dissatisfaction becomes obvious. But the opposite is true, too. If you think you married up, that will be obvious, too. Not just to your spouse, but to the people around you, to your kids. If you, if you think you married up, you are set up for success. Don't just say it. Think it. Because what happens when I squeeze an orange? Okay, good. Oh, that squirted in my face. I'm good. I'm good. I'm surviving. What happens when I squeeze an orange? What comes out? Juice. What kind of juice? Orange juice. How many times would I have to squeeze this orange in order to get some apple juice? How long? Come on. Still Forever? I think I could squeeze it forever and still not get any apple juice. It's not going to happen. Okay, I've got to do some cleaning while I continue because it's all over me. You can't see it, but it's like on my arms that squirted all over the place. No matter how many times I squirt. No matter how many times I squeeze this orange, what will always come out is orange juice. And so when we talk about dissatisfaction becoming obvious to the people around us, what is the solution to that problem? Well, most of us would think, well, I just can't show it. I got to hide it. I got to suppress my dissatisfaction. It's not going to work. What needs to come out of you is satisfaction, which means what's inside of you has to change. Because as satisfaction comes out of you, what it will produce in the other person is gratitude, 
is generosity, is love. That's what builds up the relationship, is when the expression of satisfaction comes out of you. Because sometimes we think, well, the solution is, I've just got to get them to do more. I've got to get them to do, produce more, and then I'll be satisfied. No, you've got work to do first. First, you have got to destroy the dissatisfaction inside of you before you try to get them to do anything else. Because if you think the goal to decreasing dissatisfaction is to get them to do more, then what always ends up happening is the bar just keeps getting raised higher and higher and higher. You know this is true. When you have a craving, if you crave something, you feed that craving, what does it do? The craving just builds. If you have an appetite, if you feed the appetite, the appetite just grows. This is the truth about getting more from somebody. If your objective in a relationship is to get more from that person, then as you get more, you will expect more. No, the way that you destroy dissatisfaction is to lower expectations. And that sounds harsh. It sounds like I'm saying I want you to have less. I don't want you to have less. I'm just giving you a strategy about how to get more. Lower your expectations so that you can express some satisfaction. Because if you have low expectations and they surpass your expectations, then you begin to build slowly satisfaction. You begin to be pleasantly surprised periodically. You can get impressed by them. You can be thankful to them when they do something for you rather than just, okay, you needed to do that anyway. So often our spouse does something for us, but if we, don't, if we think they should be doing more, we don't, we're not even thankful for the things they do do for us. We've got to destroy dissatisfaction by lowering our expectations, by not expecting to get the fantasy that the pornography or the chick flick created in my mind. I've got to destroy that fantasy and lower the expectations because they've gotten out of control. It's kind of like this. When I had my first kid, I had no idea what it was going to be like to never sleep again, to just be perpetually tired. But then when I had my second kid, I was like, I just got four hours of sleep in a row? This is amazing. What happened? My expectations were lower. I, I it took less to make me feel refreshed. It took less to make me feel thankful because my expectations were lower. How do we end dissatisfaction? We expect less. Not because I want you to get less, but because getting, expecting less and giving more will produce something in your spouse. This is the principle. That it will produce something in your spouse that will grow your marriage and actually give you more. But in our social media world, we are tempted to share our opinion about everything that everybody else does. Leaving a review about their actions. That hotel room, one star, terrible. That meal, one star, terrible. And everybody becomes a critic. I think it's created an unhealthy habit in our minds of being critics of the people around us, being critics of the people we are in relationship with. We tell the world way too much about our opinions because we have such high expectations now. I used to shop at Walmart. There was no 
star review next to items at Walmart. I had no idea if the thing I was buying, if the razor I was buying at Walmart was good or not. I just had to trust somebody, right? Read the advertisements. Now I go buy everything on Amazon. And what do you get on Amazon? You get to know if it's good before you ever buy it. I don't buy anything unless it is 4.5 stars or higher. My expectations have run out of control. I want perfection, otherwise free return policy. Yes, I will take it. My expectations have gone nuts. And I've also gotten in the habit of sharing reviews. Do you know how hard it is to get a five-star review from me? Way too hard. Because my expectations have run out of control. James tells us we must be quick to listen and slow to speak. You want to talk about the mindset of Christ. Quick to listen, slow to speak. I picture Jesus on the cross, hanging on the cross. And when he is before Pilate and when he's before those who are judging him, what does he say? Very little. They're like trying to drag words out of him to defend himself. Yet he's up on the cross. And when words finally do come out of his mouth, what does he say? Father, forgive them. The ones who are torturing them, him, the ones that are killing him, Father, forgive them. Give more, expect less. That's the mindset. That's the relationship. That's the goal. That's the kind of love we are supposed to have for each other. He dies for us while we are sinning against him. He forgives those who are torturing him. That's what sacrificial love ultimately looks like. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. How are we going to be slow to get angry? Destroy dissatisfaction by expecting less, and giving more. Let's spend more time asking our spouse's opinions rather than giving our own opinions. Let's ask them what they want before we tell them what we want. Let's give more and expect to get less. That's a Christ-like relationship. When you came in today, you were given the let's go card for today. You're going to be getting a lot of these. And the idea is just kind of put the principles taught in the lessons into practice. That's why we're doing these cards. And each week you're going to get one of these. This, this one today has two different sides. One for those of you who are married and those of you who are unmarried. And, and uh, the, the advice or the, the homework is similar for both. And it says, does your spouse think you invest in your relationship? Does your spouse think that you invest in your relationship? This week, find a few ways to demonstrate you are willing to sacrifice for your relationship, to sacrificially invest in your relationship. So don't just let February be a one-day Valentine day, have a fun time with your spouse. Go out of your way this month to find ways to sacrifice for your spouse. God, I thank you for demonstrating love for us, for setting the example of what it looks like to sacrifice for those you love. I pray that we would do a better job to improve, to grow in our ability to love like you love. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.